aliens and flying saucers. Hey, welcome to the 48th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the majestic MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all of its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today, my guest is Steve Russian, my former Sports Illustrated colleague and one of the truly great sports journalists of the modern era. Steve is a four-time finalist for the National Magazine Award, as well as a winner of the National Sports Writer of the Year Award. But to me, he's just this really smart, really inquisitive, really unique writer who has devoted much of his life to finding the story, whether that entails golfing in Greenland or driving high speeds on the Autobahn. So let's meet one of the kings of the medium right now on Two Writers Singing Yang. All right, Steve, first of all, um, thank you for doing this. Obviously, I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I want to start with something because I don't know if you remember this, but I'm, I'm guessing you, you might, or maybe we've even discussed it. The year is 1999. I, I'm done with um, reporting this story about some crazy racist relief pitcher named John Rocker. I'm in the Sports Illustrated offices. I'm, kind, I'm relatively new to this whole thing. And I'm actually in the elevator with you. And I think I asked you if you, if, if you thought this story was going to get any, if it might get picked up on the AP wire. Am I wrong about this? Is that my, am I correct on this memory? We were at the elevator bank. You had just reported this, this nutty story. I could tell you were very concerned about this kind of ticking time bomb that, um, well, no, in, in my mind, in your mind, you said, do you think this will get picked up? by the AP. And I said, yes, I do think it will get picked up by the AP. And I know that I was getting on the elevator to go to my apartment, to grab a suitcase, to fly to Fort Myers. What, what, what month was this? This was, uh, the story came out in December. Yes. I was flying down there for the holidays to visit my dad as I do every Christmas. And when I got off the plane in my memory, when I got off the plane, they were talking about it on the TVs in the airport, which was <laughs> not maybe this was the following day. I don't remember when they send out the stories to the, uh, you know, right. to the uh, the PR staff send out the stories. But I remember that well. How could I forget? Yeah, that, that's very funny. You know, what's funny about that. That was the issue. I don't remember if you were involved in this at all. This nightmare. It was the 50 greatest athletes from every state issue. And where he had a different cover for every state for the century. And, um, I remember they hired an outside PR staff and it was me, uh, Steve Cannell and Mark Bechtel compiled the list. It was a total nightmare. And it's like a total, we forgot like Evander Holyfield in Georgia to show how scientific it was. And <laughs> <laughs> they told us that, um, you know, that we're hiring an outside PR firm for this issue because it's going to, we know this thing is going to blow up. And. I got one call about 50 greatest athletes from an AM radio station in Utah because it, you know, it, it was forgotten about very quickly. Of course. But if in my memory, the layout of the rocker story in the magazine, it didn't really call attention in the subhead even to his outrageous comments other than something along the lines of, you know, the, the uh, controversial reliever or something. Am I wrong? No, you're right. In fact, none of that. I remember being in a meeting about it. 
And Dick Friedman, who I absolutely love, his first reaction, I always remember, was, yeah, so Jeff, I'm thinking of, uh, we need a graphic to accompany the story. What about strikeouts per nine innings? (laughs) (laughs) And that was the graphic. (laughs) Well, well, certainly... uh... That's one oh way of looking God. at it, right? Yes, yes. Well, these things are always sort of edited <laughs> after the fact by the reading public. So, yeah, it's funny. So, um, I am I'm obviously a huge, huge, huge admirer of your writing, and 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 have been for a long time. And it, there's one thing I, I I actually haven't spoken with writers about on this podcast, so I think it was interesting. Is um precision in writing and precision in words. And I remember being a kid, and I grew up this this little hip hop fan in suburban New York. And one of my favorite rappers as a kid was this guy named Big Daddy Kane. And he was really fast. But what he did was he made every word count. Like every word had a purpose. And one of the things I feel like when I read your stuff is every word has a purpose. There's no hanging fat. There's no, you're not overly, you know, filling it up with adjectives and adverbs. Am I, am, am I making something out of nothing or is this actually a conscious effort on your part? Well, no, I mean, first of all, I'm an admirer of your writing, as you know, and um, and you've thought more about writing than most people have. And um, no, that's the whole point of it to me is why write something, A, that's already been written. So try to think of a new way to describe whatever it is you're describing. You know, I always tell students in particular, if you want to go into uh, broadcasting, you you and I have great admiration for a lot of broadcasters. My wife is a broadcaster, but you can use the same phrases repeatedly. They become catchphrases. Well, you shouldn't have catchphrases as a writer. You should be, those are called cliches and you should be looking for new ways to write things. And, um, and yes, every word should count. And not only should every word count, every sentence should count. Every, you know, people think that the lead is, you know, so all important. Well, it's important, but so is the third paragraph. And so is the ninth sentence of the 10th paragraph. And, um, the close is as important as the opening. The, um, you know, if you're building to a finish, well, I like to, it's not always possible, but it's a good goal to have. Try to make each individual paragraph build to some finish. I, I, I don't like writing paragraphs that end kind of on a flat note. Um, then sections that are end with a line break, you know, have them end, um, you know, the way, the way that, uh, crime novelists try to end chapters with a cliffhanger you know this you write books and and the whole point is to keep people turning the page well you know now more than ever reading the next sentence and the sentence after that and the sentence after that is important and um and that requires you know choosing the words you know it it can lead to paralysis obviously every story can open in an infinite number of ways every sentence can be written an infinite number of ways and you have to make word choices and move along but those choices are important and um you know, I think you can tell when you're reading something if the writer has been careful in, in their word choices, or if they if they're you know using a, a a stock stock phrases from their their pantry of stock phrases. You know, but the, here's the thing that's interesting. When I um I, I have a lead you wrote in front of me, and this is just a random story from 2013. Uh, the Mona Lisa has no eyebrows. The Taj Mahal would have been unblemished symmetry if not for the tomb of its builder, which is just off center. And somewhere in the most expensive jewel ever sold at auction, the $46 million graph pink diamond, Sothersby's found a flaw, invisible to the naked eye. 
So nothing's perfect. Not even the NCAA basketball tournament. Or blah, 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 blah. My editor, my editors, when I first came up in newspaper, would have said, what are you doing here? Like, what are you doing here? No one wants to read about the Taj Mahal. Get me straight to the point. Like, I agree 100%. I, 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 yeah, go ahead. I, no, I love that. I love that because... I'm, I'm listening to that and, and I, you know, barely remember what I, what I had for breakfast, much less what I wrote three or four years ago. I'm thinking there's always that point, at least for Sports Illustrated, where you have to pivot from the interesting world at large to the NCAA basketball tournament. <laughs> and, and, and yet most editors are only concerned with the NCAA basketball tournament. I understand that, but, uh, it's just not where my interest, interest is. So do you, in a way, are you writing to entertain yourself? You know, because I've had many people, definitely in books, who say you need to think of the reader. And I always think, I don't really think of the reader. I think of me. And if I'm entertained, I'm pretty happy. No? Well, of course. I mean, think of, think of the writer for a second. I mean, let's, let's think of the writer for a second. Particularly when you're writing a book. You're spending a year, a year and a half. Some people spend five years alone in a room. And your only thought is, at the end of these five years, is some guy going to like it? You have no idea. Right. We've talked about this. Who knows? You have no idea when a book comes out what the, you know, they, they may have put some money behind advertising it and publicizing it. And, uh, you know, the larger the advance, if you're a, if you're the former secretary of state or something, you're probably likely to sell a minimum number of copies. But for the most part, you have no idea what the reception is going to be. So if you're not entertaining yourself, if you're not enjoying it yourself, if you're not loving what you do on a daily basis, there are an, any number of other better ways to to make a living. So uh, so yes, my first priority is always to um, to like what it is that I write and hope that other people like that. If I'm writing solely for um, you know, and we've all taken assignments where you have less interest in the subject than you have in other subjects. And, and it shows in the writing. I mean, it just inevitably shows your level of interest. Um, if your level of interest is really high in something, it's going to be a better piece. So, you know, I also write to entertain my parents, which is difficult because my mom has been dead for 27 years now. But the kinds of things that I amused them with at the dinner table when I was a kid have never left me. And I'm still trying in some way to, to make my parents laugh when I'm writing. Oh, that's interesting. Do you actually think of them when you are writing stories? You know, uh, no, I, I don't. I think when I first started writing for SI, um, uh, the, I, I made a conscious effort not to think about the reader and not because, um, you know, I, I was thinking about my editor. Certainly, I wanted to get another assignment and do the next thing. But I remember thinking that there would be a kind of paralysis if you thought, oh, well, when this comes out and you know, however many million people are going to read it, they may not think this is funny or they may think this is inappropriate or, you know, you, you, it's like defensive driving, you know, defensive writing is, I just don't think it produces good work. So I, I, I tried not to think that there's this, you know, particularly if it's three o'clock in the morning, you're already completely punch drunk. You've been covering a baseball series for four days and now you're crashing out 2000 words in a handful of hours before the USA Today drops at your door in the hotel room and the bill comes sliding through and you hear those first chirps of the bird outside the blackout curtains. And now you're panicking that, you know, you have two more hours to get another 1100 words written. If you're thinking while you're doing that, um, if some guy 
in the dentist office in Topeka is going to be offended by this particular line, then uh, it would just make the degree of difficulty that much worse. So I, I tried really not to think of any, you know, any large audience. You know, there is this kind of uh, uh, vague reader out there, sure, but um, but no, yeah, I, I thought about amusing my friends, my parents, um, you know, and a lot of stories I've done have been going to some place for going to Antarctica or going to uh, Greenland or going to Indonesia and coming back with a story. And, and when I wrote, written those stories, I've thought, you know, what would you come back and tell your friends about? Well, if you're showing them the horrible slideshow of your vacation, what are the first things you'd, you'd be telling them about? And um, so that's kind of the, the reader I have in mind is when I do any story is coming back and what would you tell your wife? What would you tell your kids? What would you tell your friends that you saw on your trip? Right. You, uh, I asked you, um, the other day to send me what were the stories you really enjoyed or really felt. And, and one you sent me was, it's called Ring Toss, a visit to the most dangerous racetrack in the world, uh, the German Autobahn. And you wrote it January 15th, uh, 2001. It originally appeared in SI. <laughs> Your lead is the most unsettling thing about driving 142 miles per hour on the German, German Autobahn in James Bond's convertible with the top drop is not the sudden realization that your head juts above the windshield. So that any airborne object, a pebble, a lug nut, the shedding payload of a flatbed truck will forever be embedded in your coconut, like the coins and keys you sometimes see in the hot asphalt of city streets. Nor is it the banana yellow Porsche GT3 that draws even with you in the passing lane, lingering off your left flank for 30 seconds as if attempting the in-flight refueling of a stealth bomber, while its leering driver hand gestures you to uh, drag race him. Then you put that, that terror passes quickly enough when the pilot of the Porsche loses patience and leaves you in his vapor trail at one-fifth of Mach 1. No. What makes a man vow to change his life, to say nothing of his underpants, should he survive such a journey as this? The journey hasn't even begun. Um, how'd this story come to be? It's a great, I mean, it's a freaking great, great piece of writing and a great story. How did this even come to be? Well, you know, I sent you that story because I, the stories I loved doing for SI back in that day were these ridiculous things that usually would be conceived in a bar, oftentimes in the same bar, the Emerald Inn on Columbus Avenue. And uh, in this case, a great editor and writer at SI, Rich O'Brien, um, who I think was probably on the motorsports beat at the time, said there's this place in Germany called the Nürburgring. It used to be a Formula One racetrack. And uh, 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 Nicky Lauda was in a fiery crash there, a famous fiery crash. Uh, it was so dangerous with so many hairpin turns and things that they closed it down to Formula One driving. But then they opened it up for the general public to drive on as fast <laughs> or slow as they want, all at the same time in whatever vehicle. You know, it could be a station wagon with dry cleaning swinging in the back window, or it could be a, a real race car. And uh, so a photographer who I traveled with a lot, English photographer Bob Martin, a legendary guy who many uh, everybody at SI certainly knows, um, mm -hmm. he and I went over there and Bob had arranged for us to borrow a, a $200,000 BMW uh, Z, what the heck was that? Uh, it was a convertible. It was a race car convertible, basically, and it was the car that James the Bond was Z8, the Z8, as Bob kept calling it. It was the it was the car that James Bond, the current James Bond, was driving in the current James Bond movie in release in two thousand and one. And we signed like ten pages of documents in German at BMW's headquarters in Munich, uh, which, for all I knew, meant we were taking sole responsibility for the car. And if something happened to it on this, and we certainly didn't tell them we were taking it to the Nurburgring, they would never have let us borrow it. 
if something should happen to it, you know, I'd have to, in addition to the mini bar and stuff, I'd have to put $200,000 for a Z8 on the expense report. And then we took it up there via the Autobahn after, you know, putting it through its paces in the Alps and stuff. And, and it was, it was terrifying. And, and I had never driven a, a stick shift before. So, you know, it, it was, it was nuts. And then we get up there and there's all these people that, you know, um, are making their seventh or eighth or ninth or 10th trip from the United States to the Nürburgring to drive this stuff. This course closed down at some point while ambulances went out and carted off the injured. The people died there and, uh, not while we were there, but, but, uh, frequently. And so it was just, it was just nuts. And, and it was the kind of story that, you know, SI had this long tradition of publishing stories where people would write in and you, we would see all the letters, as you know, and, and write and say, what does this have to do with sports? I remember Franz Lids, great Franz Lids did a story on Jeopardy, the game show. And people would write in and say, well, you know, this was a fascinating story and I really enjoyed it, but I don't want to see it in my sports magazine. This, and think about that. Think about somebody writing in to say, I enjoyed this. 7,000 word story that, that <laughs> I spent a, a happy hour reading it. And then I got, I got pissed off that it was in a sports magazine. I mean, right. what is the, what is the, the thinking of that? So I did a lot of stories like that playing golf in Greenland, ice golf, or, um, looking for the northernmost golf course in the world in a different story. And, um, and, you know, I want remember one of our managing editors saying to me with his packet of, um, of, uh, you know, market research stuff that this, after the story came out and he was praising the story, but he said, after he said, you know, this market research will show later that this will be the least read story in the magazine this year. And he said it by way of saying, I'm publishing it anyway. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my thinking was, yes, but it will be something people remember three years from now. You know, they won't remember the, the nine stories necessarily on the NFL draft that ran in the same issue. But they will remember this weird story. And we're talking about it, you know, 17 years later. So I, I um, you know, I'm grateful that they assigned those stories to me and published them. Um, you know, those were those were harder and harder to do with each passing year to get them in the magazine. I was going to say I had um, I did this podcast with uh, with Rick Riley a couple months ago and uh, actually met him at a diner out here in California. And. You know, we were talking and talking about the, you know, all the cool stories we got to do at SI and the unique experiences and 7,000 words about a, you know, a boxer whose gloves, you know, nobody heard of the guy and the padding was pulled out of his gloves or riding around on the Audubon. And, um, I felt a, a profound sadness at the same time. I love hearing these stories because I feel like this doesn't exist anymore. Do you, do you feel that as well or no? Um, you know, I think it's much, uh, yeah. I, it probably does exist uh, on occasion, but it certainly doesn't exist as a regular thing where, you know, okay, what's the next crazy thing we're going to get to do? I don't feel so sad about it. I, I do certainly miss it and, and, um, and would love to read more stories like this and love on occasion to write story like this. Um, but, but I remember, but, you know, the circumstances for me personally, I have a wife and four children now. And to yep. go to um, Greenland for a couple of weeks is is out of the question. For the most part, I did go to Antarctica a few years ago for two weeks. It's the longest I've been away from home on assignment um, since I've had kids. But um, Simon Broody, another English photographer, great sports photographer, one of the greats of all time. He and I went to Greenland, as I mentioned. We were in a mm-hmm. bar in New York, Emerald Inn, where we hung out. And he mentioned that there was a story, I think, in the 
Daily Telegraph or something in London about this ice golf tournament in Greenland and we should pitch it. So we pitched it after 400 beers and, and SI said yes. And so some few weeks later, he and I were, were sh- we lived near each other on the Upper West Side. We were sharing a car cab to uh, Newark to fly to Copenhagen. And when we got to Copenhagen, we would be flying halfway back across the Atlantic to Greenland. And once we arrived in Greenland, at the one landing strip there, we got on um, two separate Sikorsky, uh, Vietnam-era Sikorsky helicopters to go where this ice golf tournament is. And I remember being first in the cab saying, you know, what are we doing? You know, this was kind of a joke over beers in the, at the Emerald Inn. And now we're actually having to go do this story. And then again, when we got on these old helicopters uh, flying across Greenland and and we said, if something happens to this helicopter, SI will run a short black bordered note from the editor, you know, about these two guys perishing. <laughs> And, uh, and that'll be it, you know, and then, then you'll be on to the rest. Then there'll be a scorecard item about, you know, the funny quote of the week or whatever. It will, nobody will care, at least in my <laughs> case, you know, I have nobody to return to, you know, they'll go to my apartment, pull out the, the, the $9 worth of, uh, personal belongings that I have and rent it to somebody else that afternoon. And so it was a great time in life to be doing this kind of nonsense. But, um, but I do remember Simon saying like, you know, we're on this helicopter in Greenland in February, March, whatever it was. Our, you know, most of the day is consumed by darkness, and um, for the amusement of some guy taking a dump, you know, in in uh, uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, is this really something you want to be doing in twenty years? And of course, at the time, I could think of doing nothing else. Um, but now, I would I would be thinking um, three or four times about kind of putting myself in those situations. Right. You know, my, um, my, I had a college roommate. He, he, he went on to be a lawyer. His name was Paul Dewar. And I remember one time we were sitting around in our, in our dorm room in the Christiana Towers at the University of Delaware. Maybe he was drunk or we were playing video games. And he said, uh, he said, you know, life is all about the stories. It was like the simple thing he said. It's all about the stories. It's just all about if we go out tonight and we hook up or we don't hook up. It's not really about that. It's about coming back and having a story to tell about it. Um, I feel like that's a guiding, it's almost like the guiding principle of my career in journalism. And I feel like it's kind of the same for you. You know, there's, there's no question that, um, that anything you, that doesn't kill you makes for a great story. And, you know, I remember reading an anthology called Bad Trips and it was, uh, a bunch of writers just writing about the worst trip that they, they'd ever been on, which to me, you know, is a great story. Any, any one of those stories is a great story. And one of the pieces in, in that anthology was by Martin Amos, the great, English novelist um, who was writing about a plane he'd been on that he thought was going to crash. And, and there's this, this struggle in his mind between, I hope I don't die. And, but what if I, what if, what if we survive this? This is going to be an unbelievably great story. And yet if we do crash, I won't be able to write this story. But if we don't, you know, this is going to be an amazing story. And that preoccupied his mind you know, during this uh, terrible turbulence and, and emergency landing. And I've had that same thought myself. And, and um, so, yeah, it, it's anything that can be, can be rendered, uh, you know, can be sold for parts as a story is a great thing. And, and that can be a kind of, it can be a good way to go through life. And it can also be kind of a, um, a not such a good way to go through life if your first thought <laughs> 
in a plummeting plane is, gosh, I hope I get to write this. <laughs> I'm actually, it's so funny. You probably thought this too. I've been on a ton of really bad, turbulent flights in my, in my life. And I'm always, when I'm in the middle of it, I'm always thinking, oh my God, this is the worst. I hate this. Just, I just want to survive. I'll never fly again. And then afterwards, I'm always thinking, I have to tell someone about this. The first instinct is, who am I going to tell this story to about this horrible flight? And flights really kind of sum it up beautifully. And that's what journalism is. Who am I going to tell about this? You know, I got to do this crazy thing. Who, I, who do I get to tell about this? And you know, from, you know, decades as a sports writer, you go to interview somebody. The first thing they ask is, what was he really like? You know, what was that guy really like? You know, what's he really like? And, and that always amuses me because what they really want to know is, you know, what does his house look like? Um, you know, what was he wearing? You know, people are fascinated by what's in so-and-so's locker, you know? And, you know, the, the, the answer to the question, what is somebody really like? And again, I'll, I'll refer to Martin Amos writing about tennis. I sat next to him at Wimbledon once and, um, he wrote a piece for, the New Yorker on uh, the New Yorker had had uh, assigned him to go behind the scenes at the uh, whatever the tennis tournament was in Miami. And um, and he said, what you find when you go behind the scenes is another scene. And anybody who's gone out to profile an athlete or you know write a feature story for Sports Illustrated, unless they're unless they're a, com- a complete idiot, um, they're going to create a, a, a scene of whatever it is they want you to see. And, right. and so, you know, there's, there's, you know, the dog for years, there were the closing photograph would be the, 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 the guy with his wife and the kids and the dog and the fireplace on the couch in the, in the, in the mansion. And obviously that's a carefully constructed scene, um, you know, to, to portray what their domestic life is like. Who knows what the guy's like? You're trying to, you know, capture whatever it is that you can capture in the time and the time that you're allowed. And, you know, when I was a baseball writer, uh, uh, predecessor of yours at, at SI, they assigned me a story on Dave Henderson. Dave Henderson at the time playing for the A's, great Dave Henderson. Yeah. And, and so I flew from, you know, PR guys know I'm coming, you know, Dave loves to talk to you, blah, blah, blah. I fly from New York where I was living at the time to Oakland. I'm, I'm a rookie baseball writer. I don't know, but I'm staying at the Oakland Hilton down the road from, from the stadium. Have nothing to do. Manute Bowl was in the bar, by the way, which was uh, <laughs> a site I'll never forget. It was like Manute Bowl and like two ball bearing salesmen at the end of the bar. And it was, you know, the total Star Wars cantina. And I go to the, I go to the ballpark and I go up to Dave Henderson in his locker. I introduced myself. I said, did they tell you I was coming? Yeah. I said, you know, Sports Illustrated always really likes to get the guy away from the ballpark. You know, can you take him to lunch? Can you go to his house? You know, any, any scene that's, you know, not at the ballpark. And so I'm giving him this blue sky pitch of, you know, maybe I can ride home with you after the game. Maybe we can go to lunch tomorrow. And he cuts me off and says, I'll give you seven minutes. (laughs) And I said, seven. And he said, yes. And I said, and usually I would just, I would just accept whatever, you know, I mean, I, I I was just Jimmy Olsen cub reporter. I was so astonished having gotten off this transcontinental plane ride that I said, you're going to tell me your life story in seven minutes? And he said, yeah. And we're going to do it like right here, right now. And we went to the dugout and I turned on my tape recorder and he talked and, and, and at seven minutes gave way to 10 minutes. And, and eventually we probably talked for an hour and that was it. That was it from Dave. Uh, I talked to, you know, his teammates and everybody else. 
which was fine. You know, you can, you can, you can, you can, you know, it's like using all of the turkey, you know, after Thanksgiving, you can make soup, you can make everything out of that, that hour. And you, know, Steve, you can, you can learn a lot from a man in seven minutes. Well, I mean, if, if, you know what, Jeff, if it had been seven minutes, then every quote from, from Dave in those seven minutes probably would have appeared in the story. And then there would have been yeah, 400 right. quotes from everybody else. Um, right. you, you just had to do what you had to do. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, I, I don't remember what the question was, but, uh, but, um, yeah, those, those stories are, you know, the stories that I remember 25 years later from, you know, from doing this crazy, crazy stuff. I was just thinking, um, I once did a story, I was assigned a profile of Pudge Rodriguez and I went to his house in Miami and I remember literally zero of what he said. I don't remember if I met his wife. I don't remember if his kids were around. But I remember two things. Number one, he had a life-size statue, bronze statue of himself in his backyard. And <laughs> he had all, he had all these classic books on his shelves. And when he went to the bathroom, I looked at one of them and then another, and there were no pages in the books. They were just the bindings <laughs> of classic books. But, but when you, when you walk in and you see a statue of a guy at his house, I mean, and then you have to, you have to, you can't, you can't react. The way you might react in print or the way that you might react to your friends, you just sort of play along in this. It's like when you're in a taxi and the guy is babbling some crazy theories or something, but he also has his li your life in his hands. You just have to right. sort of sit there sort of benignly acting like none of this is happening. And it's the same thing when you're in a guy's house and you see the lifestyle statue of himself. You have to you can't get thrown out of his house by kind of laughing. Because you need time with that person, but um, it, it is different. It's a uh, you know, it's I certainly wouldn't have traded this work for uh, for a real job. That's for sure. Yeah, I agree. Is it? Is it? This is a weird one, but is it? You go to the guy's house and he has a statue, a life size statue, and you're thinking to yourself in your head, "This is utterly preposterous. Like this is the most preposterous thing I'll see this year." You obviously don't say it to Pudge Rodriguez. Is it okay to then? turn around and in an article sort of make fun of him having a life-size statue of himself, or is that unfair well, uh, to the uh, subject? There was a time when I was 22, I probably would have now, you know, I think a huge part of the, of the job is to try to, um, is to try to understand what motivates a guy to put a life-size statue of himself in, you know, in the courtyard or whatever. Um, and, you know, that's empathy and, um, you know, where at a time you might've made fun of the guy now, I'm older. I'm 51 years old. I might think, you know, what is it? You know, what is it in this guy's childhood? What is it in his life circumstances? You know, that requires the the um, monument to himself in in you know next to the the fountain or whatever, and 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 something as kind of over the top as that also doesn't require your own kind of um, editorial mockery in in a piece. You know, you just put it out there and and people react the way they, re they react. Um, I also find the older I get that, uh, what I think is, is, um, you know, not the way things are done is perfectly acceptable. And in fact, uh, celebrated by, by other people. So, uh, you know, I've, I've been to uh, my own kids, little league games. I know you love youth sports as much as I do. And, you know, a kid might hit a three point yeah. shot and duck walk back to the other end of the court while, while, you know, uh, uh, 
trying to uh, rile up the crowd of three people in the gym. And, um, you know, and, and I mentioned to another parent, you know, that now, I'm not sure if I'm coaching the kid. I want him, uh, you know, him kind of uh, uh, barking at the other team after hitting a three. And this parent said to me, he said, you don't, but believe me, every other, every other coach and parent, you know, thinks, thinks it's great because that's what they see on TV. So I kind of just shut up at these things now. And then my wife and I have that conversation on the drive home. Yeah. Yeah. I've gone through a lot of that. Um, actually, my son had a flag football game the other day. And I'm the assistant coach on this team. He's 11 years old. And the coach on the other team, his son was the quarterback and he threw an incomplete pass in a, a beautiful pass that just was over, overthrown. Kid's 11 years old. And the dad pulled him out of the game and screamed across the field, what are you thinking? And I just thought, this isn't really what I signed up for. I was, I was at my son's little league game the other day and the opposing coach yelled at the 15-year-old ump, you have the worst strike zone I've ever seen. Yelled it from the from the first base coaching box. Nobody said anything. Nobody did anything. The, the kid just stood there at home plate and continued to ref the game for his 15 bucks. A couple of years ago, I was at my son's uh, baseball game and um, a kid, a kid hit a stand up double. He rolls into second base. Uh, seven years old, six or seven years old removes his uh, plastic Evo shield, ankle guard, his elbow guard, unvelcros them, summons the middle-aged first base coach to jog out to second base, hands him his, uh, you know, his Evo oh shields. God. Guy jogs back to first base. And Jeff, the kid had just hit his double off a tee. <laughs> so think about that. He's wearing the, he's wearing the armor at the plate, they just, it's, they're just reflecting what they see on TV. So, you know, of course. Then, you know, so you summon and the guy jogs out there and, and uh, we had a game the other night where the, the opposing manager was in baseball pants, you know, in addition to the, uh, the, the shirt they give him for, for little league and stuff. And, um, you know, all of which is fine. It's just when you think the stakes are the same as they are in the world series, it's when it all goes off the rail. Wait, my favorite is <laughs> to draw on this subject. My son had a flag football coach a few years ago who gave a good speech to the team about his time playing football at Utah uh, in college and his um, his tryout. He had a tryout with the Dallas Cowboys. And I thought it's kind of weird. I never heard of this guy. So I just I Googled his name. I had a conversation later and he said he played at Utah State. And I looked up, as anyone can do, the Utah State all time letterman, you know, on their website wasn't there. But that's kind of weird. I call, I emailed the Utah State Sports Information Director. He said, yeah, give me a call. I'd never met him. He, I gave him a call and he said, yeah, he's this guy who's telling everyone he played at Utah State, but he was like, he tried walking on as a kicker and never played a game and, and blah, 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 blah. This guy was literally bragging to a bunch of nine-year-old boys that he was a football star at Utah State or had a tryout with the Dallas Cowboys. That's what we've gotten to. I mean, it's unbelievable. And, and to think that Google doesn't exist or that, you know, I mean, we have politicians who, who have a whole, uh, biographies made up of this stuff that, uh, oh, geez, now there's an internet. I guess, I guess, um, I shouldn't be saying this stuff anymore, but, um, I know that it's not about, this is not about writing, but it, it, it is, it does feed into the, um, you know, when I'm writing that, yeah, I have to remember that, you know, there are people who, for whom this kind of stuff is just, you know, they don't see anything wrong with it. So. Um, you know, the only, the only thing 
wrong with having a statue in your yard is, you know, you can't afford to have a statue in your yard. Otherwise, that's Let's build one to ourselves. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my nephew, Isaiah. So, Isaiah, because this commercial is for 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports gear, I wanted to teach you some throwback lingo. Um, okay. All right. So, if someone's doing something dumb, you got to be like, why are you bugging? I don't want to say that. Okay, okay. How about this? Take a chill, pill. Definitely not saying that. Yo, home fry. No. Illin. Uh-uh. Check out that mall chick. Nah. All right, how about this? In the 1983 USFL Championship game, Bobby Bear and the Michigan Panthers beat Chuck Fusina and the Philadelphia Stars in an epic battle. Wow, really? Absolutely. And that's why you need to check out 503 Sports, the greatest place for throwback sports merchandise. Why? Because they have it all. We're talking USFL, we're talking World Football League, we're talking XFL, minor league baseball, minor league hockey, old school Portland State, or put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning a Craig James Washington Federals jersey, well, dreams come true. The merchandise at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So be like Isaiah. Go to 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to get 10% off your first purchase. Um, you are a, uh, I've always thought you're, and, and this has sort of become your trademark in many ways, is your, your use of words, your sort of twisting of words, your, your digging into words and, and sort of breaking things out of words. Um, you had a, you had a column in, uh, 2010, the specialized language of sports. And one of the things you wrote is the other great name for a pitch is an ephus, a nonsense word coined as a synonym for the blooper ball. Bloop, like bling, is a kind of onomatopoeia to which sports have made many great contributions. Swish for a made basket and swoosh for the Nike logo and swish swoosh swish swoosh for the sound of West Virginia basketball coach Bob Huggins makes when walking in his nylon tracksuit. You have a, I don't even know the adjective, ridiculous um, need to sort of take words and double down and triple down and figure out not only where they come from, but how you can use them in different ways. Uh, where did that come from? And, and how much is that a part of you? It's, it's, uh, it's a hundred percent a part of me from childhood and it, it's more of an affliction or a, um, <laughs> nervous tick or, um, you know, uh, a disorder than anything else. And, um, you know, I do remember vividly as a kid, uh, being interested that, you know, the twins who were terrible when I was a kid, but win is in the middle of twins and just seeing that in the newspaper headline. Um, you know, I read the, the, my earliest literary influences were the sides of cereal boxes. And, and I just read everything as if, as if, you know, the world was a book that you could finish all the street signs and the signs on the side of trucks and stuff. And I was able to read from watching Sesame street before I went to, um, before I went to kindergarten. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I wrote in my last book about being as a kid, seeing Vietnam as one word in on TV and in newspapers and seeing it sometimes as two words, Viet space, capital NAM NAM. And, and knowing that this is a war about a divided country. And, and in my mind, somehow it was, it was about, you know, the, the division of the actual word Viet and NAM. And then sometimes you'd see it reunited. And that was all mixed up in the war in my mind was the word, as if they were trying to reunite the word as well as the country into one country. And so it's something that, that, that I've always had. Um, you know, I, I checked out of the school library when I was a kid 
some word puzzle kind of books. And, you know, when I found out there were palindromes, a man, a plan, a canal, Panama was the same forwards as backwards. It blew my mind. And, and so I kind of, you know, I was always interested not just in reading and writing, but in words. And, and, you know, if, if, if you study to be a chef or you go to school to be a chef, um, but you don't like food, what's the point, you know? Um, so, you know, if you, if you're a writer and a reader and you don't, love words then then what are you doing and if you do love words then i think um you find the stuff you you, you love words and, and so you know i just really think of myself as somebody who loves words you know which isn't to say that everybody shares your toby harrow your all-time favorite oh. baseball player toby harrow jim otto jim otto even better because jim otto had the double zero and i remember as a kid um you know whenever i didn't know what a word was my dad would say i'd ask my dad I'm reading the newspaper. He say, "Look it up." I mean, a big red American Heritage Dictionary next to his Archie Bunker chair, and um, and so I would look up the word. And I realized later that he would only tell me that when he also didn't know the definition of the word. So I'd look it up, and now we'd both know. But he would he would sort of confirm when I would read it to him, like like yes, that's what it means. And I remember I told him about palindromes coming home from school one day. He never heard of the word palindrome, and so. Um, uh, Later, we were watching a, a football game, and there's Jim Otto, the uh, the center for the Oakland Raiders, and and my dad just kind of looked over his newspaper at Otto on the back of his jersey, the double zero, and he just said palindrome, and and sure enough, there it is, Jim Otto palindrome. So, so yeah, you know, there's a uh, uh, Rob Nen, not not only a palindrome but a, a short name, you know, Ed Ott, five letters in his full name in Major League Baseball. That's so cool. I remember reading. I think in a Roger Angel baseball book that Aurelio Rodriguez was the only major leaguer at the time who had all five vowels in his first name. And Ed Figueroa was the only one with all five vowels in his last name. That stuff blew my mind. So, so you know, even that stuff kind of fed into wanting to be a sports writer because there was so much to play with just in the names of baseball players. And, of course, as you know, baseball players, baseball cards, um, you know, baseball stadiums, there was so much that just fascinated me and I assume you as a kid about this whole separate cosmos of major league baseball. Oh yeah. It's funny. I, uh, I'm looking at the Amazon page for your, uh, your last book stingray afternoons and it came out on July 3rd, 2017. And I'm not kidding. I swear to God, when I say this, when I see July 3rd, 2017, I see Ken O'Brien, who is a quarterback with the jets. Number seven, I see three, I see Babe Ruth. I see 20 Bucky Dent shortstop with the Yankees. And I see 17, uh, Mickey Rivers, but it could also be Keith Hernandez. Like that's my curse. When I see Absolutely. numbers, I see baseball players. Yeah. And if you have to, if you have like a combination lock or something that requires you to remember three or four separate numbers, you always go to, 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 uh, uniform numbers. I mean, at least I do. You know, my wife and I were talking this morning and she said, there's something about seals and crofts, the, the, the seventies soft rock Titans, seals and crofts. And, and, um, and England, Jan and England, Dan and John Fort Coley. And I said, you know, it's seals of seals and crofts and England, Dan of England, Dan and John Fort Coley were brothers. Um, England, Dan was England, Dan seals. And she, she had no interest in whatever I was talking about. My seventies <laughs> babbling, uh, my seventies soft rock babbling. But she said, how do you know this? And when did you first learn this? And, and, and why didn't anything else crowd that out in the intervening 40 years? And, and, and you know, I don't know why, but the same thing with uniform numbers and, you know, people, people kind of, disparage uh the archaic baseball statistics of batting average and era and stuff but but um you know those were numbers that that stayed in your head you know i mean they 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 stayed in your head you know rod carew batting 388 in 1977 
you know, it's important as a, as a, um, as like an historical artifact and, and, you know, all of the important stuff that I, that I don't know or can't remember or never learned, um, is, is not there because that batting average is. Yeah. I think I would trade being able to find my car keys for knowing that, you know, former jet safety, Eric McMillan attended the university of Missouri. <laughs> well, you know what? Anybody can find their car keys, but, but very few <laughs> know that. So, um, and, 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 you know, it's even, if it's even sadder when you think, you know, of all that, you know, about the New York jets, you know, um, it, it's not, it's not that you can, you can at least, um, uh, entertain a larger room of people with with trivia about rock and roll or um or movies or um you know some mass culture thing but when when you're when it's confined in my case to the Minnesota Twins yeah. or, or the the Jets of the 80s you know it's 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 a much smaller uh a much smaller Venn diagram of of people who yeah. share that yeah your listening audience is not grand but that's okay um, cause if you find passionate, if you find fellow, you know, for the, for the 27 other Minnesota twin fans from, from the era, they're thrilled to talk to you. But it goes back to what we we're talking about earlier. If you're passionate about something and it's, you're interested in it, it's going to shine through in whatever it is that you're writing about. You know, um, I've had my, I've had my, my dad say, you know, he'll read some zillion selling, um, thriller or something and say, you know, you should write a book like that. And I said, dad, you don't think if I could write a, write, you know, the Da Vinci code or something, you think I, I, I just don't want to have a billion dollars and, you know, and, and, and hundreds of millions of, of copies of my book out there worldwide. It's, it's just, it's not what I do. It's not in me. It's, it's, you know, I write about the things that, that, uh, interest me. You know, I've been lucky that it has interested enough other people that I get to continue to do it. But, um, but, you know, in my case, if if I had grown up fanatically, you know, working for the New York Yankees and then, uh, you know, attending their games as a kid, would would there be more people know what the hell I'm talking about rather than the twins of the seventies? Sure, but this is this is this is who I am. It's what I do, and um, you know, I don't like to contrive. Um, you know, I'd be interested to ask you actually when you when you when you do a book project, what is foremost in your mind? Is it, you know, are there enough? You know, there's you start with, you know, there are zillions of Lakers fans or Dallas Cowboys fans. Um, I'm going to, you know, write a book about that, or this is where my interest and the interest of readers overlap, you know, both I would enjoy writing this and people would enjoy reading it. How do you, how do you balance that, that calculus? Well, I know I have to eat. So I'll generally, it's I mean, important. Like it is important, especially when you have kids and, and, and a family, but you know, like Brett Favre is a classic example. I didn't, my dream was to write a USFL. Like I've wanted to write a USFL book for years and years. And the only way I was able to get a USFL deal was to attach a bigger book to it. So I attached so Favre to it. You make but your it, blockbuster so you can make your independent film. Yeah, basically. Yeah, actually a hundred percent. But the thing is, I really do believe this. And I'm sure I think you do too. Once you get into it, it doesn't really matter. You know, like, it doesn't really matter that you're writing about a quarterback that you didn't really care that much about because once you're sitting there on the couch with his mother and she's showing you scrapbooks and the rat shit is falling, literally falling out of the scrapbooks because of the flood and they had the, the mice attacked all the, the storage. 
all of a sudden you're like, it doesn't really matter because everything is interesting. So, and it's, it's a person you, you're writing about people. You're writing about right. everything is writing about people. And it's, right. it's, it's great that Brett Favre is known by millions and, and people are, you know, will be automatically interested in reading about him. but you're absolutely right. Um, you know, once you're, once you've got the thread of this person's life or, um, you know, this person's circumstances, then it's all writing about people. And, it, and it's as interesting if it's, uh, you know, your postman or if it's Brett Favre. Now, you know, people are going to read, buy a lot more books about Brett Favre than about your postman, but, but you're absolutely right. It's, um, you know, once you're in, into a story about a person, you you should be interested if you're another curious human being. Right. I want to ask you a final question. You, um, I, I was on your page here, your July 30th, July 30th, your Ken O'Brien, Babe Ruth, Bucky Dent, uh, Mickey Rivers page, Stingray Afternoons, your memoir, which came out, um, last year. Um, is writing a memoir as it's for me, it would seem beautifully torturous because we're used to generally writing about other people and digging other, other people's lives. It seems like picking apart our own lives would be a little more difficult and a little more, uh, maybe traumatic or, uh, self-loathing. I don't, I don't know. Did, did you not find it as such at all? Um, the difficulty there is, is in writing about people that you live with, that you lived with, that, um, that you gave birth to you and all that. And, um, and they don't necessarily see themselves understandably the way you saw that. Um, just in the same way that my kids, uh, have a very different view of me than I have of me, you know? Uh, so, so I think my dad was a little bit, um, he had to process things about this book. I mean, I think my dad is the hero of the book. My mom and dad are. Um, but you know, in his mind, not in his mind, in reality, he was a, he was a, an executive at 3M, uh, in charge of marketing their audio and videotape, their magnetic tape, sold it to television studios, film studios, uh, recording studios. So he'd be in places where rock stars he didn't recognize were recording albums. Um, but in my book, you know, boiled down to a memoir, he is a magnetic tape salesman, you know? And, um, and so, you know, that kind of thing was, was difficult, but for the most part, it was the most enjoyable, fulfilling experience I've had because certainly in writing books. And, and I think in, in writing period, because, um, I've had so many people and not just from, who grew up in the Twin Cities in the 70s, but people who grew up, somebody from Italy, somebody from uh, Australia, somebody from, you know, places that I would think would be quite unlike Bloomington, Minnesota, where I grew up. Um, but they, they, um, it resonated with them and their upbringing in a different country at a different, in a different decade. So um, when you make those connections and people recognize themselves, and their families in yours, I think, um, you know, that's what's fulfilling about writing yourself rather than writing about others. And really, you know, I'm one, one of many characters in this book. It was really to me a way to write about, uh, my siblings and my parents and my hometown, um, you know, and still sell it to a publisher. So I'm actually writing, um, a, a, a sequel of sorts to it now about set in the 1980s about High school, this book ends when I'm about 13, this last one, about high school, college, and then something we've all done, or we've all done, that you and I have done, and setting off to New York, you know, where, where it will end, um, you know, to kind of try to make your way in the world. And, uh, and, and that, to me, is writing about, you know, a time in everybody's life, leaving home 
and going off and trying to, you know, make a living um, that that everybody is experienced. I only happen to know my version of it, but it, it, hopefully other people will identify with it. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Not, do you? I said final question, but final, final. Do you um? Do you view as Matt? You know, I had Ray Thompson on here a while ago, and he said something, and it kind of stuck with me. He said, no matter how many books you sell or blah, 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 wherever your life takes you, you're never going to, I think the quote was, you're never again going to be the 25-year-old badass motherfucker with a Sports Illustrated badge walking into a clubhouse. And I was thinking about that a lot, actually, because there was something really magical about that time at SI, you know, that late 90s, mid 90s, sort of the magazine was it, and we were going all over the place. Just I don't know, do you look back with nostalgia at that? Or am I overstating something that maybe wasn't as good as I think no, it was? No, I, I know exactly. And, and, uh, um, uh, and right, right is right. Um, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to do it again. I'll say that. Because when I was a 25 years old and walking into a major league clubhouse, I was not walking in through the swinging saloon doors thinking I was some badass. I was walking in with, um, you know, something close to an ulcer worried about having to approach this super famous guy making $10 million a year and, you know, get my quotes and get my story written. I, I covered baseball in particular in a near constant state of, of, um, of anxiety. It was, it was, um, and, and I was on the road every week, 38 mm-hmm. weeks a year. And the first year it was unbelievable. It blew my mind. I'm sitting on a dugout at Yankee stadium. How is this possible? Um, I, I was super grateful felt uh, ridiculously lucky, but also felt constantly, um, under, under excruciating pressure. This sounds ridiculous to say, but, but I was what, 23, 24 years old. And, um, and I remember one night sitting at Camden Yards in the press box. It was a Friday night in the summer. It was a beautiful night. There were people my age drinking beer on dates in, you know, down the third baseline. And I was surrounded by mostly middle-aged sports writers and doing my dream job. And I remember distinctly thinking, I wish I was out there. I wish I was out there with the day, yeah. drinking a beer, you know, being a 24 year old, then, then being in here. And I knew, I knew how lucky I was. It, it wasn't that. And I, and, and, and I wouldn't have traded it for anything, but after three years, I would have traded it for, for anything, anything else. And that's when I got off the baseball beat and started doing other things, but it was, you know, and, and, and somebody like Tom Verducci, who's done it for decades better than anybody, you know, it's, it's, I, I recognize now it's, it's partly to do with, obviously in his case, talent and knowledge, but also with personality that, um, I, I just wasn't, uh, I wasn't a gregarious person. One of the reasons I became a writer was I was comfortable alone in a room with my thoughts. And the worst nightmare in the world for me was walking up to a stranger, introducing mm-hmm. myself. And then, you know, asking them the most personal questions you can that you would never ask somebody without a press pass, you know? So, um, uh, you know, and we all have stories about walking up to, walking up to some baseball player's locker and, and having your worst nightmare realized of, you know, getting chewed out by the guy or something. And, um, you know, so I remember walking into, uh, the Pirates Clubhouse at Wrigley Field and Jerry Royce, the Pirates pitcher, looking at my, uh, who was a nice guy. I mean, looking at my, uh, press pat, my tag around my neck and said, working press. That's like jumbo <laughs> shrimp, you know, oxymoron. And just walked by and I was like, 
I, I've, I've just set foot in the cobbles. I'm hanging out by the door and I, already I kind of feel like a, a schmuck, you know? So that, that was, that was 38 weeks a year for three years, uh, feeling like that. Yeah. Actually, it's funny because I, I guess there was a gap in there. Tim Layden, maybe after you. And then I took over the, I was Verducci's, I was doing the inside baseball column. And I remember a moment when I was in Seattle sitting next to a relief pitcher named Ryan Franklin. And there, there was an empty chair. And I said, can I, uh, you mind if I sit here? And he goes, sure. And it belonged to Arthur Rhodes, the relief pitcher. And I was talking to Ryan Franklin and Arthur Rhodes is walking way on the other side of the clubhouse, not even coming over to his locker, screams at me to get out of his chair. And you're just, there are moments where you're like, what am I doing? Like, how is this? What? <laughs> Imagine that happening in any other business context. It wasn't any. a business. It wasn't a professional thing. You know, uh, Doug Rader, after, after a, uh, I was doing a story on Chuck Finley of the Angels, as I wanted to put him on the cover as the best left-hander in baseball. And Doug Rader, the Angels manager, this was on a hot day at Fenway. I couldn't even get him. To, uh, he, I would say, you know, do you, would you say he's the best left-hander in baseball? You know, I was just fishing. He's like... <laughs> I wouldn't say he's the best left-hander on our staff. You know, we got Langston and he was having none of it. And, and that day, that day, Chuck Finley, you can look it up. This would have been 1990 lasted. I believe I'm one third of an inning and in it start that day. One third of an inning. <laughs> he great. got an out and they were down like 11 to nothing. And then, but they still had to play the next three and a half hours. And after the game, I went into Raiders office and he was getting undressed and he took off his uniform pants and he balled them up with the belt still in it and he whipped them. Um, at the laundry hamper, but they hit me. And, and so I thought he was throwing his pants at me in a rage just upon seeing my face of the guy who was asking me if this guy who lasted, who got one out that day was the best left-hander <laughs> in baseball. And I, I remember saying to my dad later, you know, no matter how bad any business meeting got at 3M, did anybody ever stand up across a conference table, take off their pants and throw them at you, you know? And so you know, it was just a, a, as intimidating a thing as you could be. And I remember um, uh, telling this story to somebody um, on the Giants beat or who was on the A's beat uh, later who said that they were walking through a clubhouse taking notes while Raider went on a, on a rant about something post game. And Raider had thrown his pants off uh, while getting undressed going on this rant. And they landed on this writer's head. And the writer had to continue <laughs> diligently taking notes and nodding along solemnly because if he or anybody else acknowledged that Raider's pants were on his head, it would have sent him off, you know, into an e e even greater rage. So it's like when somebody's talking to you at a restaurant and they spit a little piece of salad on your face or something, you got to pretend that it's not there, that it didn't happen. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what it was like covering baseball. I mean, it, when we talk about anything that makes for a great story uh, is good for a writer, this was all great stuff for a writer. Um, but, uh, but God, when you're living it at the time, I'm not sure, you know, to write Thompson's point, I'm not sure that I would want to be living it again in 1995. Well, I just want to say, I feel like nothing you can say can top my experience, which you actually mentioned in one of your books, Caddy Was a Reindeer. I was interviewing Lou Pinella as he was simultaneously urinating, eating a hoagie, and smoking a cigarette, and talking to me all at the same time. I feel like I went. It's one of my it's one of my all time favorite stories. Jack McCallum <laughs> told me he was interviewing Whitey Herzog in the manager's office in St. Louis, and they had a long conversation, a pleasant conversation. Whitey's wearing his. Uh, his, you know, pristine white Cardinals top with the, the birds on the bat and the, you know, beautiful stitched uh, logo and the Cardinals cap, the red turtleneck under the white shirt. And at some point he got up to illustrate some point by pulling a book off a shelf and, and Jack realized that he was undressed from the waist <laughs> down and had been during the course of the interview. So 
I mean, that was just kind of what, <laughs> what you did as a baseball writer. And I mean, it's completely, completely crazy. And, and, and I always like it when I see on uh, highlights or something, and they're interviewing an NBA player at their locker and the guy's dressed I- immaculately in some, you know, uh, high fashion uh, thing. Um, I, I, it gives me hope that kind of things have changed or are changing where, you know, the, the kind of, uh, kind of, uh, uh, confrontational nudity and stuff from when I was covering baseball was so ridiculous that, um, and no reason for it, you know, they acted like, like, you know, that they were surprised on a nightly basis that 50 reporters were being let into the clubhouse of, of both genders. And, you know, I mean, it was ridiculous, ridiculous custom. Right. I agree with you. I do want to say also that, um, I did have the, one of my great all time baseball experiences was standing at a urinal in Dodger stadium next to Vince Scully, who I'd never spoken to before. And this voice of God in baseball takes a very, obviously pleasurable piss and goes, ah, and, and walks away. Well, I mean, you know, we, we could, we could devote not just one episode, but an entire podcast series to these <laughs> stories, but I, I'll just leave it with this. I did a long feature on Sparky Anderson once when he was manager of the Tigers. And naturally, if you're doing a feature on Sparky, you want to talk to his players. So I went up to the great Alan Trammell at his locker and said, uh, you know, may I talk? I'm doing a piece on Sparky. You know, would you have a few minutes to talk? And he said, sure. Can you just hang on one second? Of course. So I stood at his locker and he disappeared into a stall, stall in the Tiger Stadium clubhouse. And he came out like 45 minutes later with the newspaper, like the Detroit Free Press, and looked at me at the locker like, you're still, he didn't say you're still here, but his look was like, you're still here? Like, this is, this is, this has never failed me previously in my career, but I, I genuinely thought that I was supposed to wait there at his locker. So I guess impressed, he then talked to me, you know, for 20 minutes because I was stupid enough to right. stay there. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a ridiculous uh, job, but one I'm grateful yeah, to. Yeah, that's that. awesome. Yeah, I agree. So like, like Paul Dewar, my roommate said, it's all about the stories at the end of the day. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Steve, listen, thank you. This has been a joy for me. I can't thank you enough for this. I really, uh, you know, a huge fan of your writing, obviously, and, and, and you as a person. So thank you so much for Thank you, Jeff. Right back at you. Thanks. I want to thank today's guest, Steve Russian, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Steve on Twitter at Steve Russian and visit him at steverushin.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Slinging Yang on iTunes and Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is from the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.